full epistle here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in the New Testament. We cover chapter 1 here at Calvary Chapel. We go through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse. A couple weeks ago, we just started in 2 Corinthians, and so we want to continue. We'll pick it up at verse 1. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. All right. Father, we just thank you for uh, this time that we have together. And, and Lord, I do pray that uh, as we just get settled into our seats, we've had a wonderful time of worship that we right now want to be touched by you, by your word. And so, Lord, bless this time. Lord, I do pray that you would um, make us ones and help us to be ones that are teachable. Just opening up our spiritual ears and, and Lord, having a heart that is soft and and desiring to hear from you and to learn. As, as Paul here is getting personal in this letter to a group of people that he cared for very much, that we would, Lord, learn from it and we would make applications. So bless this time in the study of your word. I, I pray that, Lord, that as we make application, that it would touch our hearts. And we know that this letter was written 2,000 years ago for us today. And so we look forward to what it is that you're going to teach us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So one of the things that, that really stands out about Paul's life and his ministry that you see very clearly as you read the book of Acts, you read about his missionary journeys, and then as you read his letters that he wrote to the churches, to the believers, I really see that Paul, he had a shepherd's heart. That is, he had a real pastor's heart. And what I mean by that is that he really cared and had a concern for those that he ministered to. He had a, a deep godly love for the Christians that he knew. And Paul was one that he made sure that he was never a burden to the Christians, but he ministered with great integrity. He ministered with great sincerity and simplicity. And even though Paul was one that was very loving and caring, he still had those who sought to come against him and challenge him and, and try to, to make him look bad. Uh, that he, he was one that would hear the whispers of those that were saying that he couldn't be trusted, that uh, he wasn't a, a man of his word. And so I'm going to go ahead and turn this off and we'll just go right to the pulpit mic instead of wrestling with this all the time. So anyway, he was one testing. All right. Let's try that, guys. So he was one that, even though there were those trying to make him look bad, um, and they were saying that he couldn't be trusted, and the reason was is because, you recall, as we looked at chapter 1, there, there were those in Corinth that were saying that, that Paul, that he wasn't a man of his word, and the reason for that was because Paul, on his third missionary journey, after he had established the church at Corinth, he did that as he ended his second missionary journey. He was in Corinth for a year and a half. He would leave Corinth eventually. He would then, on his third missionary journey from Ephesus, he would make a visit to them. And as he made that visit to them, it was a painful visit. It was a very difficult visit that he uh, made towards them because they needed to be corrected once again. He had some very hard things to say to them. And Paul also had expressed that he wanted to come see them once again, a second time. And so that trip didn't happen. And so verse 15 of chapter 1, we see that Paul is explaining why he didn't make that second trip to Corinth. And so as Paul is explaining why he didn't come to them, one of the reasons, as we concluded chapter 1, was that he was trying to spare them. And as we now move into chapter 2, 
he's kind of explaining further his reason for not coming to them that second time. So let's pick up our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So Paul had made a short visit to them after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And it, it was a visit that, as I mentioned to you, that was full of conflict and, and unpleasantness. So he says, I was determined that I wouldn't have another sorrowful uh, visit with you, Corinthians. Uh, I didn't want to come to you in this heaviness, and I didn't want to come to you uh, with all this tension that's taken place. So I determined within myself, is what he says. He was committed. He had made a choice that when I did come back and see you once again, that it would be with happiness. It would be with joy. And, and I don't want to bring grief to you. I was determined, as he says here, and literally what it means is that he had made a decision in his soul, in his heart, spiritual self-talk, if you would. Now, David was one in the Old Testament that he would do the same thing. He was a man that determined within himself. We can read Psalm 103 as David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So David was talking to his soul. He was determined in his heart that I'm going to bless the Lord, O oh my soul. All that is within me, start worshiping soul. And sometimes I know that it's real important that you and I, that we determine within ourselves to talk to our souls. Again, looking at the example of David. David was going through a real hard time when you read 1 Samuel chapter 30. And David took his men on this military excursion, the 400 mighty men that were with him, that were dedicated to David, that, that were ones that were you know, faithful to David for all those years that David was being pursued in the wilderness by Saul, being persecuted by Saul. So David and all his men uh, and their wives and children, they were living in Ziglag, as you read 1 Samuel chapter 30. Ziglag was in Philistine country. And, and this is before, again, David was king. And here is David. He's in Ziglag. He leaves with his mighty men. They end up going uh, somewhere else away from the city. So they left their... Uh, families and their homes behind unprotected and at that time the Amalekites came and the Amalekites came to Ziglag they burnt down their homes took their wives and their children all the way captive and at that time when David came back to Ziglag and can you imagine they could see the smoke you know rising from the horizon knowing something terrible had happened and they get to Ziglag and their homes are in ashes uh, they have their families that are gone all their possessions are gone and when David's mighty men saw that they were greatly greatly um, upset and and they were upset at David they were ones that were saying, David, we have been faithful to you. We've been on this you know, run from Saul. We, it seems like it's been one wild goose chase after another. And now our families are gone and our possessions are gone and our homes are in ashes. And David's mighty men were very upset at him. So much so that they were ready to stone David. Now, all of us have had people that are upset at us. But I don't know if you ever had several hundred men that were upset at you at one time. I know that I don't think I have. Some, there's been a day or two where I thought maybe that it was that way. But I've never had, you know, 400 men ready to stone me. 
And I would imagine that David, not only being afraid at that time, but he was greatly discouraged because of all the trials and difficulties that he had gone through. And then as we read in chapter 30, that what David would do is make a very important decision. What he would do is he would encourage himself in the Lord. There was no one else that would be there to encourage him. There was no one else that was there to, to lift him up. He made a decision that I'm going to give myself to the Lord. I'm not going to just continue in despair and defeat in this depressed state. But what he would do is that he is strengthened and encouraged himself. He determined within himself to draw from the Lord. And he was determined not to continue in that despair and sorrow that he was in. And as he did that, he began to think about the faithfulness and the goodness of the Lord. I will not forget all of God's benefits. I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord and then ultimately go to the Lord and inquire of him, which David did. But David made up his mind to set his mind and heart on the Lord, not to set feeling there sorry for himself. And it's a good encouragement for ourselves that we are to do that in the Lord, to strengthen ourselves, to go to the Lord and inquire of the Lord. And determine within our hearts to do that, especially when we're going through trials and difficulties. And remember the faithfulness and goodness of God. And to say, Lord, I don't have to continue in this defeated state, but I'm going to speak to my soul. Oh, my soul, Lord, you are good and you're faithful and you are with me. And to remember his promises. Bless the Lord. And to go in that way to where we're built up and then we are encouraged. I know that in my own life, that there are those times where I had the decision to make. To continue either being defeated or being down, feeling sorry for myself, whatever it might be, or to start to strengthen myself in the Lord. Remembering his promises and his goodness and his faithfulness. Maybe it came by just reading the psalm or reading the scriptures and maybe giving praise or listening to praise music. And then I find myself drawing close to God. And, and as I do that, than being encouraged by the Lord. I find strength and I find wisdom and he gives me direction and, and I realize that everything's going to be okay, that he's with me, that he's going to work in my situation. My countenance begins to, to change and, and you'll continue in the things of the Lord and finding the peace of the Lord and finding the rest of the Lord as we make that decision within ourselves. So Paul here, he's doing that. He says that, yes, it's been difficult, my relationship with you, but I was determined within myself. I wasn't going to continue in this sorrow for you, this grief for you in verse 2. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? So Paul had written a correcting letter to them. We talked about that, that Paul actually wrote four letters to them. And after 1 Corinthians, which was really the second letter that Paul had written to the believers at Corinth, he wrote a third letter to them, and that letter being lost. But he's given indication that it was a harsh letter, that it was a, another corrective letter. And so that letter being lost, he makes reference to it. And Paul, as he wrote that letter to them, or any time that he wrote to them, corrective things, such as 1 Corinthians, this third letter, Paul wasn't trying to be overbearing. He wasn't trying to be dominating. Now, you recall that we ended last time that Paul said, I'm not here to have dominion over you, to be helpers of your joy. 
Paul wasn't one that was trying to be dominating and, and, and trying to be overbearing to the Christians at Corinth. But Paul wanted to bring that correction to them that they might do well in the things of Christ. He wanted to see them restored to a right relationship with God and also with each other. So he was honest with them. He was very straightforward. But he also knew that if he was constantly just on them, then it could damage his relationship with them. So he says that when I come again, it's so that we can rejoice together. I don't want to have this sorrow in verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come or came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So I wrote to you not to, to discourage you, not so there, there's this tension between us, but I wrote to you so that you can have time to work things out and have time to repent. Have time to kind of get it together. That when I do come and visit you, and Paul would eventually make another visit to them after he wrote this letter, that we can kind of just celebrate together. I wrote to you so that you might have time to get your homes and your lives in order so that when I do come back to see you, that we might have a good time and, and not have all this tension between us. He continues reading in verse 4, But out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. I want you to know that what I feel, I have a heart for you. That letter that I wrote to you, yes, it is corrective. Yes, it would seem like that it was a difficult letter for you to receive, but he says, I wrote it with much anguish and, and a lot of tears with love that I have for you. It wasn't just a rebuke by a tight-fisted tyrant. Please don't misunderstand me is what he is saying. I really care for you guys. I, I have a deep love for you. I'm concerned for you. That's my heart for you. And I think that the Corinthians really had kind of failed to know the tone and the heart of Paul in writing his letter to them. It wasn't written angrily, but I wrote it to you compassionately. It wasn't with a finger pointing in your face. But rather, I wrote it with many tears on my face. I think that we can learn from this. I think it's really important for you and I to remember that when we read the scriptures, that we don't want to miss the tone, the, the, the heart in which it is written. You see, we can read the stories, we can know the text, we see the instructions, we, the commandments that are given to us, the exhortations, but so oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we will miss the tone in which they are given. It's interesting, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He's only days away from his crucifixion. And as he was talking about his impending death, he turns towards the heavens and he says, Father, glorify thy name. And we were told at that time that there was a voice from heaven that said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the people that stood by and heard that voice said it, it thundered. And there's others that said, no, it's the voice of an angel. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the Father speaks, and there are those who heard him, the same thing. Some said it thundered. Others said that it's angelic. A group of people in the same spot, at the same time, 
hearing the same voice, but yet they had different reactions to it. And I know that when we read the scriptures, that we can read it sometimes, and people will have different reactions to the scriptures. They'll read it and they'll say, oh, that is like a thunder. Maybe perhaps thundered condemnation or, or, or thundered harshness or, or whatever it might mean to you. And others read it and they will say, yes, there's conviction, but, but I hear the tone of the Father who loves me, who desires for me to do well. And I pray that that's the tone that we would hear the scriptures through. A father with his loving hands reached out to me, wanting me to do well in the things of God, walking in him, walking in his ways, having a love for him. So it's so important that we, we as we mature in the Lord, that we don't err like the Corinthians did here, who failed to feel and to know the tone of the message that was being given to them. Paul says that I wrote to you because I really care about you. I have a love for you, a godly love. And I did it with anguish of heart and with many tears. After Adam had sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve there in Genesis chapter 3, they ate of the forbidden fruit. And what they did is they sewed fig leaves together and they hid from God. We read that God came to Adam and you know how he called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Now, when you read that story in Genesis chapter 3, how do you hear the tone in that? Do you hear the tone of the father as he says, where are you, Adam? Do you hear the tone of an arresting, you know, a police officer that's coming, you know, to, to arrest Adam? Upset, angry father that's saying, Adam, where are you? Oftentimes people will hear it in that tone. But I want to suggest to you that it wasn't in that tone at all, but rather, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? We walk together in the cool of the day. Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, where are you? What have you done? And I believe that it was the voice of a heartbroken father. And I would encourage you to ask the Lord to help you hear the tone, the heart, as you read the scriptures. I think a good verse for us to remember, you might want to jot this down for you who like to take notes, but in James chapter 3, verse 17, I'll read it to you. James chapter 3, verse 17 reads this, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So make sure that when you read the scriptures and when you hear the scriptures, that you hear it through the hearing aid of James chapter 3, verse 17. What you are hearing as you read the scriptures or hear that sermon, or as you're reading that book perhaps, is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it gentle? Is it full of mercy? And if it is, then you know it's from above. And correction will come to us, and warning will come to us. But again, it's going to bring peace. It's going to be one that is pure. It's going to be gentle. It's going to be full of mercy. It's going to show that a loving Father desires for you to turn to Him and experience abundant life and experience eternal life as you do. But if you hear something that it causes confusion, that there is no peace and it's bitter and it causes strife, James says that wisdom comes from the world. It, it, there's evil in that wisdom. And so 
I've taken a little bit of time to mention this, a little bit this morning, because I want us as a church family, and I want us as individuals to know this, that as we read the scriptures, make sure that we are hearing it, the tone of the Father, the love of the Father that he has for you and for me. Know that he wants us to do well. Know that as he brings correction, conviction to you, that I've said this before, but it's very important for us to remember that it's to draw us to himself, never to push us away in a condemning kind of way. You see, that's what the enemy does. He's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. He desires to push you away from God, to fill you full of anguish and, and not to have peace, not to, to, to have, you know, and know the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Not to know of his love. And I want you to know this, that as I teach the word of God, I'm going to give you the word of God. Well, that's one of the things about going through the scriptures, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I have to give you the whole counsel of God's word. And as correction is brought or warning is brought or whatever it may be, that I simply teach the word of God because I care for you. I care for my family. I care for this church family. I want to hear what the Lord has to say. I want to be corrected when I need to be corrected. I want us to, to, to consider these things and, and to know the things that we're doing well and then the things that we need to be corrected in. But always know that my motive is this. My motive is because I care for this church and I care for the people that come here and the people that I have great opportunity to minister to. And I teach the scriptures hopefully in humility and simplicity where you can understand it, and a desire because I have a love for you, that you would consider what the scriptures have to say, and that you would turn to the Lord and know of him more and desire to walk with him and to do well in the things of God. So here we see that, that the Corinthians, they, they missed that, and they would read the letters from Paul, and they thought Paul's just being condemning, he's being harsh and pointing his finger, and he's coming down hard on us. So Paul says, listen, as he gets personal with them, you Corinthians know this, that I have a love for you. Don't miss my heart for you. And that is why when I wrote to you, I did it with much tears, with anguish of heart. And verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. Now you might recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul had written to them concerning a certain individual. There was an individual in the church of Corinth involved in sexual immorality with his father's wife, with his stepmother. And Paul said, this is a sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. Apparently, a lot of people in Corinth knew about that situation. And Paul also indicates in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the church was actually puffed, out, puffed up about it rather than grieving and mourning over the situation. So when Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians in addressing that situation, he told the church, this is serious. And you need to deal with this situation. And what you need to do is put him out of the fellowship. Don't just approve of this. Don't let him come in and just boast about his sin. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? And so Paul was instructing the Corinthian church about that situation with the hopes that this individual would realize what he was doing was wrong. And it was sin. And it was destructive. 
that he realized the seriousness of it when he was put out of the church and that he would repent and, and be restored ultimately. That was Paul's desire, that he would realize that he was in sin and that he would repent of it and then eventually be restored. Don't just give him sanctuary in the church where he doesn't realize the seriousness of what he is doing. So put him out and he will feel the effects of, of what is going on and, and don't let him affect the whole church with his sin. He is leavened. Now they did follow Paul's injunction. They did apparently, according to what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians, it seems to indicate to us, and many scholars believe this, that they put that individual out because of the adulterous life that he was living. The desired effect came. And the man did repent. So Paul's making reference to what he had told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But after this man repents from his sin, they wouldn't let him back into the congregation. Kind of shows the fickleness of, of the church here. At one time, they were allowing this guy to, to walk up and down the church showing off his immorality. And then they deal with him. And after he repents, they won't let him back in. And so Paul is saying, verse 6, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Hey, it's time to bring him back. The discipline worked. He has realized the seriousness of his sin and, and stupidity. And he has repented. Now it's time to receive him. Lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Your harsh stance towards this man has real danger here of causing grief to this one individual. And it's not necessary. There is to be restoration. There is to be forgiveness on your part. Paul would write about that to the Galatian believers. If a man is overtaken in a trespass, that you are to show gentleness, and as there is a repentance heart of that individual to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of meanness, but in gentleness, meekness, that you restore such a one, and that's to be a part of the, what the church is to do. That's your desires for an individual to repent, but then there's restoration that is to be done. So this individual, allow him to be part of the congregation once again. I didn't mean for you to punish him permanently, so verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So this is a time now to receive him, restore him, reaffirm your love to him. I hope that is our heart here at Calvary Chapel. You see, we're going to call sin, sin. And, and we are to be ones that we're not to tolerate sin and immorality. But may it also be a place at the same time that we will restore and receive and show love to anyone who realizes that they need to turn away from this sin, that they need to walk with the Lord, and they do turn away from their sin. And then when they do that, that we be ones that said, you know, we want to restore you in the spirit of gentleness. We desire for you to, to do well in the things of God. Not give a response of, well, I heard what you did five years ago. We have a file on you. We know all about you. May it not be. But restoring such a one who desires to come back with a repentive attitude. And that's what Paul is telling these guys. Verse 9, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. 
Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. When Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he instructed them on what to do, get them out, and they met the test. Now he's putting them to the test again, telling them to restore this repentant brother. He wanted them to be obedient to all things. And interesting that Paul would say that. I do think for some that it can be easier to be obedient when it comes to being harsh or tough than when it comes to being forgiving and loving and restoring. And Paul goes on to say, don't let Satan take advantage of this situation. Don't let him get a foothold into the congregation and into your lives, lest he take advantage of us. And we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Interesting, there are four things that Paul writes in the New Testament that we're not to be ignorant of. This is one of them. He also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're not to be ignorant concerning the resurrection and the rapture of the church. He would also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, not to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. And then you recall just recently when we were in the book of Romans, that in Romans chapter 11, he says not to be ignorant concerning God's plan for Israel. That he says that blindness has come in part to them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And as you look at those four areas that Paul says that we're not to be ignorant of in the church, where is there a lot of confusion? Where is there, there can be ignorance concerning you know, things in, in, in the New Testament and in the scriptures in the church today. It's in these four areas that Paul says we're not to be ignorant of. So Paul here says, listen, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Know that he's going to come against us. Know that he's going to attack us in the realm of the spirit, the realm of our emotions. He will come against us any chance that he has. So Ephesians tells us that we're to put on the whole armor of God. We are told that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And the scripture shows us Satan's strategies, how he does come against us. So don't be ignorant of these things. And as we look at the strategies of Satan's, know this, that really has a, a, a short playbook. He doesn't have that many schemes. He runs the same plays over and over again, if you would. In other words, he tries to be deceiving because he's a master deceiving. And then destructive. Jesus called him a murderer. He's going to try to destroy your life. And he's going to try to be divisive. So those are the things that he tries to do. And, and, and so that's what he's doing here with this individual. He has the same plays. He keeps running the same place over and over again in our lives, and he's good at doing that. And we should not be ignorant about his devices. Now, let's say, I know football's over with, but let's say the Broncos are playing, and they come out on the field against their opponent. And if their opponent, all they ran was three basic plays, a run up the middle, perhaps a screen pass or a sweep, that's all they did. The defensive coordinator, if he knew that, he should get his team ready to where they would have good success against that team defending them, right? We know that one of the devices is, of Satan is told to us in this chapter. 
that what he will do, first of all, is, as we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that he'll try to get you involved in sin. He'll seduce you into sin. He'll try to get you to think that you'll have happiness or pleasure or it'll satisfy you. Just one more look at the computer. Just one more drink. One more snort. Just, you know, one more visit to that individual that you have inappropriate relationships with. It'll bring happiness to you. It'll satisfy you. He's very good about pulling you into sin, tempting you into sin. So he's a deceiver. Don't be ignorant of his devices. Don't think that you can get involved in sin and it's not going to hurt you or you're not going to hurt others as well. That the end of its way is destruction. And that's the second thing. He's out to destroy you. That's what he wants to do. We see that so vividly as we're going through the book of Revelation. That as we're going to see that one who is controlled by Satan, the Antichrist, is going to lead the world into total destruction. So he is one that's deceiving, he's destructive, and he brings division. He'll try to bring division in your family, in your marriage. He'll try to bring division in this church. He'll do it any way that he can. We need to be aware of those things. So he's deceiving. He's destructive, and he brings division. That's what he does. So here Paul says, don't be ignorant of his devices. Don't let him take advantage of us. Don't let Satan just condemn this individually to where he has no hope, where he feels no love, the love of the church, that he doesn't really experience the forgiveness of Christ and the forgiveness that comes from the church. The enemy is going to cause division among you. So don't let him take advantage of it. In verse 12, furthermore, when I come to Troash to preach Christ's gospel, when I came, that a door was opened to me by the Lord, and I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now keep in mind, he's talking about his affection and love for the Christians in Corinth. I went to Troash, a door was opened up, and we know that from Acts chapter 20, that ministry was happening. And Titus was supposed to meet up with Paul in Troash, but as we've discussed, Paul or Titus didn't show up. Titus had been in Corinth. He was one that he knew what was going on in the church. Paul was waiting for him to show up in Troas so he could hear how are the Christians doing in Corinth? How are they responding to that letter that I did write to them? And so he doesn't show up. And here is Titus not showing in Troas. And Paul writes that a door was opened up in Troas, and ministry was happening. Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit, though. I, I couldn't stay there. I had to move on to Macedonia and find Titus. The implication being that I need to find him. I'm concerned for him. And also, he was concerned for the Christians at Corinth. I was concerned for you guys. I really wanted to know how you guys were doing there at Corinth, how you responded to the letter that I wrote to you. And Titus didn't show up there in Troas, and I was very concerned for him. And as I read this insert of Paul here, again, I can learn some very important lessons here and some very important principles that I hope that we just stop and consider. Because Paul was one that cared deeply for the people, but he walked after the Spirit as well. 
And I think that a tendency would have been for a lot of ministers, perhaps, would have been, hey, the door of ministry is open up for me here in Troash. Ministry is happening. It's cooking. And the people appreciate me. And I think I'll just stay here in Troash. I hang out here. Why should I go searching across the empire looking for Titus when he's supposed to be here with me? And those Corinthians, <laughs> I bet they're still being carnal. I'm tired of dealing with them. I'm tired of them holding him out at arm's length. I'm tired of them questioning and challenging me my apostolic authority. I've corrected them. I've done what I needed to do. So Troas is the place to be. But you see, Paul didn't feel that way. He didn't minister out of the flesh. But he was guided by the Holy Spirit. And he walked after the Spirit. And may that be true for you and for me. May we be guided by the Lord as we seek him. In, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, Jesus had been ministering there in the Galilee region. He'd been ministering in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were huge, great multitudes. And things were happening and people were being healed. And, and of all kinds of sickness and disease. And as you read Mark, chapter 1, verse 35, we know that Jesus would then go up on the hillside early in the morning. And he would pray to his father. He was seeking the Lord there. And it would be the disciples, Peter and the rest of the guys, who found him and said, hey, everyone's looking for you. It's going to be another busy day. Look at the crowds down there. They need you. They're huge again. We've got to keep this thing going. And that can be the mentality of, of us when we're doing ministry or how the Lord is using us. And the Lord does work in incredible ways. And sometimes he does want to keep things going. But Jesus would respond something interesting to those guys. Jesus, who had been seeking the Father, he said, No, we're going to move on to another town. I've received my instructions. And so that's what he would do. He was always sensitive to the leading of the Lord. And that's what you and I are to be, just sensitive day by day by the leading of the Lord. So Paul here says, I had no rest in my spirit. He knew the Lord was prompting him to move on. He was restless, concerned, so concerned for one individual, Titus, and for the condition of the believers there in Corinth, that he says, i got to move on. And we can learn from the apostle. Paul could have been just concerned for his own interest, and in verse 13 of this chapter, he talks about his departure from Macedonia. When we get to chapter 7, he's going to write about his arrival there in Macedonia. But here he writes about leaving Troas, where things were happening. A door was open and moving on to find Titus. He wasn't blue or upset or discouraged by it. But he says in verse 14, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So Paul gives thanks to God, who causes us to always triumph in Christ. He, he's not pouting, he's not upset, he's not discouraged, but he's praising God. Now remember that Paul had those in Corinth, again, who were cynical and critical about him. So here's an important question that we can ask ourselves this morning. How do we react when people perhaps are critical and cynical about us? Here's how Paul reacts. He expresses his love for them. And then he begins to praise God, give thanks to God. And he says, Jesus is our triumph. Jesus is the one to be focused on. But what can happen so often to me, and I'll speak for myself, okay, that when I feel like this person or this group of people 
Maybe they're being cynical or maybe they're being critical of what I do, my ministry. And instead of breaking out in praise, I can get all discouraged and down. Paul is such a model for me here. Hey, I had to leave this open door in Troash, but that's okay. Thanks be to God. And one of the things that the Lord has shown me very clearly in my walk is that when the trials and tribulations come my way, when perhaps there are those who are being cynical of me or whatever the case may be, that when things don't turn out the way that I want them to, that trial, that difficulty, that challenge, that criticism, listen, oftentimes will reveal in me where I'm at with the Lord. So someone criticizes me. How do I respond to that? It will reveal in me where I'm at spiritually. Because you see, the next time that you get mad at your boss or you get ticked off at your spouse or upset at another brother or sister, understand this. That it wasn't necessarily the boss or your spouse or the brother and sister or something that caused you to spit venom back at them but it was the bump in the road that revealed what was inside of you and where you're at spiritually. And what did Paul do here? He gives thanks and he breaks out in praise. And I know that going through perhaps a trial or somebody coming down on me, that the way that I react to that situation after that are revealing me what's inside my heart. And there have been times where I said, Lord, was that really me? Did I really say that? Did I really do that? Did I really react in that way? He says, yeah, you did. And the Lord revealed something in me that needed to be corrected. In verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the, the aroma of death leading to death, the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? God has made me responsible to be representative, to bring a message to some people, the message of eternal life, the aroma of life leading to life, but to others who reject or refuse the message of the good news of the gospel. It's the message of death, of judgment. I think simply what Paul is saying here, that as he gave the message of the gospel, he knew how an incredible responsibility that he had. It's a huge responsibility to bring that message, the teaching of God's word, to bring it to where they could understand it, to bring truth to them, to bring that simplicity to them of the word of God. And that's what I pray that we do as we share the gospel as we share God's word with others, that we know that people are, are responsible for the decision that they make, that the Holy Spirit draws them to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one that softens their hearts and opens up their eyes. But we need to give a message that is clear. That as I teach the scripture simply, that I would do it in that way and truthfully. And then our lives back up what it is that we say being a testimony of God. Because eternal life is at stake. People's walk with the Lord and how they're doing in Christ is at stake, and that's a serious, very important thing, isn't it? You see, I don't want to just be one that has a dynamic personality or, you know, you go away and, boy, he was sure funny today or we sure got entertained today. Or you go away feeling 
you know, that I was obnoxious or offensive or any of those things. I want you to go away saying, God really spoke to me through the scriptures today. And the Lord really touched my heart. And I want to present Bible study in that way, in the message of the gospel, and clarity and simplicity, because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then in verse 17, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We're not to be peddling the word of God. I think there's a lot of that that can happen today, just as it was happening here in Paul's day. Those who will come along and manipulate and twist the scriptures and have secret meetings and only I really know what it means here and all this other stuff rather than just giving the simple message of what God's word has to say. So Paul says we're not meddling, we're not, you know, peddling the word of God, but simply giving the word of God to what it has to say to you. And so here it. Paul, as he says, we've been pressed beyond measure in the difficulties that we face. We trust God. He's commissioned us to bring to you the message of the gospel that you hear it clearly, Jesus Christ and him crucified, to give you truth. We minister in that way, sincerely, with integrity and simplicity, because Paul knew that the message that he gave was desperately needed, and people needed to hear it, just like the world today needs to hear that same message. So guys, as you minister to others, whether it's to your children, or you're discipling others, or you're teaching the Word of God in any way, don't play around with the Word of God. Be simple, give that message with love, not for your own gain. To help others know Christ, and to grow in Christ, as we give the Word of Christ to them. And so Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this time in your Word, and we learn so much from Paul as he gives these personal inserts here to a church that he cared about. And Lord, I do pray that as we have learned from this, it would affect the way that we present the gospel to others, how we present the word of God to others, how we minister to others, being led by the Holy Spirit, doing it in simplicity, sincerity, honesty, not peddling the word of God, but giving the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and the truth of God's word to our children, to our families, to those we have opportunity to speak to. Father, I do come this morning, and I pray if there's anyone here that's, maybe you're here, somebody's here in this place, and I know the coffee shop is full out there, that you've never really responded to the gospel. At Calvary Chapel here, we want to give you opportunity to do that at every service, to to come to know Jesus Christ who loves you, who calls you to repent and turn to him and experience eternal life as you come in faith, realizing that you are a sinner. And Jesus is the only one that can save you. He's made provision for forgiveness of sin as he went to Calvary's cross and died for your sins. He shed his blood on Calvary's cross for you. All of your sins were placed upon him. And then he would cry out from the cross, it is finished. I paid the price. I've done the work. He was put into a tomb and he rose again after three days and he's alive. And the way to salvation and forgiveness of sin 
is to come in simplicity of faith and childlike faith, believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins, rose again. And as you believe in him, as you turn away from the world and give your heart and submission to Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation for you. It isn't going to come by hearing a Bible study or belonging to a church or if your parents are Christians. It comes by repenting and turning to Jesus, the Savior of the world. We want to give you opportunity before we come to the communion table. And you pray in your heart, Jesus, I come to you and I give my heart to you. I confess that I am a sinner and I need the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so I come and I give my heart to you in faith and trust. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for my sins and that you rose again. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for dying for me specifically. I believe that you're alive and that you're in my heart right now. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. If anybody prayed that prayer, that you come here this morning, I want you to just raise your hand. Anybody